I think having seen things from both sides of the couch, if you will, I've really come to understand what it is that psychotherapy is. And it's my experience as a patient that's really helped me wrap my mind around this field and its purpose and how beneficial it can be. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Emily Anhalt, who is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. And moreover, she is actually a very specific type of psychoanalytic psychotherapist. But I'll go ahead and let her get into that in the episode because it's quite a mouthful and I don't want to botch the entire thing. So um, Emily is still a student. She'll be done with her PsyD in just a few short months, which will make her a psychologist. But despite being a student still, she has been seeing patients for over seven years, which is far longer than I have ever had any job for in my life. So um, we'll talk about all different things relating to being a therapist, how um, Emily going to therapy has completely changed her life for the better, how being a therapist has changed her views on things in the world, um, and just what it's like to have people kind of unload emotionally on you all day, every day, and what it's like taking that home with you. So got to give a quick disclaimer here that Emily is a psychotherapist and psychological consultant working under the license of a supervisor. Um, her interview is not trying to garner any patience or offer any advice. She just, which is the point of the show, she just wanted to talk about and make more accessible to people the idea behind psychoanalytic psychotherapy and let people know what happens in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. So again, not trying to give any advice or acquire any patience at all. Just trying to put the info out there in the world, you know. Um, if you want to follow Emily and uh, continue the discussion with her after the episode, you can find her on Twitter at EmilyCA5. Now, without further ado, here is Psychotherapist. Emily, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Why don't we start out with, I don't know the different types of therapy. I, I saw your title. I saw a psychotherapist and I, I hear people say therapist. Uh, I've never really heard psychotherapist before. Does that mean that you deal with like particularly psycho people? And then is that any different from a psychologist, a psychiatrist? What What is the deal there? There are a lot of distinctions. A psychiatrist is someone who went to medical school and can prescribe medication. A psychologist is someone who got their doctorate in psychology, and it can mean a couple different things. And a psychotherapist is referred to in sort of a general category of a bunch of different things, having reached a certain level of education. So more importantly, maybe are the different types of therapy. Uh, I'd say you can kind of fit things into one of two very broad categories. That's a huge generalization. There are so many different types of therapy. Mm -hmm. But as it's sort of general broad rule, there is cognitive behavioral therapy and there's psychodynamic psychoanalytic therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is more concerned with symptoms and helping people essentially deal with a situation where the symptom is in and of itself more harmful than what might be underneath the symptom. And that's a personal opinion of mine. Some people feel that cognitive behavioral therapy can be used for anything. To me, I think it works best to manage really difficult symptoms. So an example would be obsessive compulsive disorder or a phobia. CBT could be useful for something like that. 
The type of therapy that would be considered more psychodynamic, psychoanalytic therapy, essentially the thing that defines it is the belief in the unconscious. So the way I like to explain it is that, yes, symptom relief is important. However, just fixing the symptoms is like putting a Band-Aid on an open wound. It might help stop the bleeding, but it's not going to stop what's underneath it and what's causing it. And so psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapy really tries to get to the most root cause of what's going on and help you understand your relationship to your own mind and to others and to the world. That's interesting. So, and this is the type that you're trying to specialize in, I would imagine? Yes. So I am specializing in psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy. Okay. That is a <laughs> mouthful for it sure. Is. <laughs> so what would your title, so you're still in school right now, correct? To be getting, you said it's a PsyD or something like that? Correct. So the PhD, Doctor of Philosophy, uh, people in my field were finding that it was too geared toward research and toward teaching and didn't focus enough on actual clinical work. So a new degree was started, the PsyD, Doctor of Psychology. How long ago is that? That's a really good question. I want to say that it was something like 50 years ago. Yeah. But I would have that to double check that. That makes sense because it's like you're not also – I can understand like an MD's beef with not wanting a psychologist to be called a – or a psychiatrist to be called an MD because, I mean, you're not performing surgeries or anything like that, but, I mean, you're dealing with the mind, so you also shouldn't really be called a PhD. You, you kind of need to have your own thing. Yeah, I think the idea was that there needed to be more training to help people be ready to see patients right when they got out of school, rather than only being set up to teach or do research. Right. So in a PsyD program, you start your clinical work much sooner, and most of the training is geared around that, although there's still a doctoral dissertation necessary to do so that we understand the way research works and so that we contribute to the body of literature in the field. Ultimately, what we live with is more understanding of how to actually work with patients. Yeah, yeah. So what? Uh, as you're going through your schooling for this, first of all, how long of schooling have you been in? Um, what does that look like? Like after at what at what point can you stop? Like what degrees do you get along the way? And um, are you seeing patients the entire time that you're doing this? So every program is a little different. The program I've chose, I chose it because you start seeing patients immediately. I'd say month two of your first year, you start seeing patients. After two years, you get your master's. You have to pass through a certain kind of certification of presenting a case and passing, and then you acquire your master's. But it's not a functional master's. If I were to quit right then, I wouldn't be able to be a practicing uh, therapist with the master's because there are separate requirements for that. But then after you've gotten your master's, you have another minimum two, maximum three uh, more years of classes. And then you have to get pre-doctoral hours and then graduate and you have to get postdoctoral hours. And somewhere in there, you also have to have finished your dissertation. That's crazy. So I am in my seventh year of graduate school, and I'm acquiring my pre-doctoral hours. That's so wild. So you're in your seventh year of graduate school, and you've been seeing patients for about seven years then? Correct. Wow. Awesome. Um, how old are you? I'm 28. 28. Okay. Sorry. I, I can tell that you're young, so I felt that that was an appropriate question <laughs> to ask. I should say that. So... Do you find that being a therapist, I would imagine, so from the business world, when I was in business before and I was younger, I would actually intentionally, and it's funny because now I actually need glasses, but when I was younger, I started getting glasses with no prescription uh, just because it would make me look a few years older. 
And I, and I was surrounded by so many people that were in their 40s and 50s. And I was like, I, I, I look like I'm in my early 20s right now. Like, no one's going to take me seriously. No, and and I, I was always so worried about that. I would imagine that that is a very big fear as a therapist and maybe even a point of contention that a, a client would bring up with you, which is, hey, who the hell are you? Like, you're only 28 years old. What, what good advice could you possibly give me? You haven't lived a lot of life yet yourself. Yeah, well, firstly, I'd probably throw out there that we definitely aren't here to give advice. Um, you know, we're we're really trying to help people understand themselves. You know, when someone comes to an idea themselves, they're much more likely to relate to it and to take action on it than when it's handed to them by someone who's just met them or only knows them in a certain capacity. That being said, I do think that there are certain benefits to being an older person in this field. There are some things that are only acquired from life experience. But that being said, I think that going to therapy is a really anxiety provoking thing. And people will find reasons why it's not right in order to kind of keep from having to be vulnerable. So, you know, I've definitely had patients say, oh, you're young. What do you know? But if I wasn't young, they might say, oh, you're not a man. What do you know? Or, you know, oh, you're not from the same country as me. What do you know? And, and those things are valid, but what, what probably is important is to say, what does it mean to you that I'm young? You know, what what's the fear there? What aren't you worried I'll understand? And that is going to get us to more important things than me just being older. That's such a good point. There's There's no way that anyone listening to this doesn't have some sort of connection with somebody in their lives that they feel is deep connection with somebody, despite the fact that they are not the same gender or they could be very different ages, like somebody that does work at your company that you just feel a real strong bond with, even though they're 10 years older or 10 years younger or whatever it is. I mean, my wife is four years younger than me and we <laughs> we share like the ultimate connection, you know? So um, yeah, there's certainly something to be said for the the block that you, I guess, would put up in your head versus if there, if that's actually a problem. And a big idea of therapy is understanding how you relate to people. So understanding how a patient relates to the therapist is going to be more fruitful than just, you know, skipping over all of the ways in which the therapist and the patient are different. Yeah. So I guess either way you're saying, so you mentioned that as a therapist, it's not really your job to give advice. Um, as well, you are pretty young. So like if somebody is going through a divorce, like you haven't even been married, let alone divorced. So, you know, what, what kind of advice could you, could you give per se to somebody that's going through a divorce besides uh, what a therapist should be doing, I guess, which is listening and everything like that. Um, but do you feel like, like either way, you're, no matter what the person's issue is, that that's almost kind of a, a moot point for a therapist because your advice needs to be, and again, I guess if I, I keep going back to the term advice, and I know that that's not right, but that you you can't really color your conversation with this person with your own life experiences and with who you are. You need to kind of step outside of yourself when you're dealing with these people. Sure. But I mean, you know, let's say a patient came in and was talking about divorce to a therapist who's never been divorced. Well, the therapist has never been divorced, but they have felt abandoned and they have felt alone and they have been in conflict in ways that they haven't been able to, you know, fix right away. You know, it's really about what lies underneath a lot of these things that you're trying to understand. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. 
So then do you feel like those are things that you can share with a client of yours? Do you feel like you ever really get to connect with the client or do you have to remain um, a like keep an arm's distance just emotionally speaking, but B, do you have to kind of become a little bit more bland of a version of yourself while you're helping the person out? So the therapeutic relationship, the relationship between a patient and a therapist is a really unique one. And, you know, it can be tough sometimes for the patient because they come in and they're totally vulnerable and exposed and they tell the therapist so much about them and it's not reciprocated. You know, the therapist isn't also telling the patient all about themselves. And that can be tough, but it, it's it's for a reason. Um, the reason is, one, so the patient understands that there are boundaries to the relationship that they can bump up against. It's not the patient's job to keep themselves from going too far. It's a therapist's job to make sure that the patient doesn't, you know, have any essentially boundaries broken that would be uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. part of that has to do with the therapist not exposing too much about themselves because what happens in therapy often is a patient comes in and puts a lot of stuff that's about them onto the therapist, just the way we're doing all the time. You know, we project our own feelings and thoughts onto other people, and it feels like it's coming from them. And the therapist picks up, you know, what's happening there and, you know, comes to understand it over time and reflects it back to the patient. So let's see if I can give an example. Like, let's say a patient came in and would be talking a lot and would, you know, tell the therapist, you're totally uninterested in everything I have to say. And the therapist might think, okay, I'm not actually uninterested, but this patient feels that I'm uninterested. Why might that be? And over time, as the patient talks about his or her life, it might become clear that a lot of people in that patient's life have been uninterested. Mm -hmm. So now the therapist has some information about the way the patient relates to the world. If the therapist tells too much about themselves, it prevents the patient from being able to project onto them. It takes away the opportunity for the patient to make the therapist whatever they need them to be for a little while so that they can work through stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Whether or not that originally gets manifested by the patient in a negative or like that example you just gave in like a, a negative or a positive way, either way, you need the patient to manifest what they need to manifest so you can know i guess where to take that now what happens if that is just specifically asked of you then you just come out and say sorry that i can't tell you that and then do you ever feel that that gets in the way so let's say that example that you gave the person you can kind of tell that the person is uh is used to being abandoned or is used to being ignored or whatever it is and the person just comes right out and says like oh has anyone ever abandoned you before do you just say, I can't talk about that? And if you do, have you now thrown up this kind of bizarre roadblock? There's now this weird vibe in the room because you just, you know, gave them the stiff arm after they unloaded Mm. on you. Yeah, questions are an interesting thing. I mean, I think that each question is going to be handled differently by different therapists too. Like some therapists do just answer certain questions, but I'd say the majority of them will be careful about which questions they choose. And you know, they might say, you know, I'm going to choose not to answer that. How does that feel for you? Or what do you imagine when you think about me being abandoned? What comes up for you? And that gives the patient the opportunity to bring themselves into the room, which is the whole purpose. That's why the patient's there is to understand themselves. Yeah. And so, you know, by 
kind of handing it back to the patient and allowing them to then have their fantasies about what might be going on for the therapist, that's going to give much more information than if the therapist were just to answer. You know, that would close down that line of thought right there. Yeah, for sure. And I think what you said earlier about the divorce thing is just so on point. It would kind of diffuse any sort of situation with the, like, you know, if somebody asked you, oh, well, have you been abandoned? Well, you know, I'm not sure if I've been abandoned, but I know, I know that I do have experiences like this and just give a much more like generic, we've all been there before type of answer that shows that you're at least connecting on some sort of human level. And like, Mm. yeah, I know what you're talking about, but, um, or saying, what would it mean to you if I had been abandoned? What would it mean to you if I've never been abandoned? That's going to give the patient a chance to think more about the way they relate to people and circumstances in the world. Do you ever have people, if you say something like that to somebody, do you ever have people just be like, what the hell are you talking <laughs> about right now? Like, that's something I, I've always envisioned, like a, this uh, this bizarre circle, like going back and forth in therapy. Like if you're sitting there with a therapist and they're like, well, the, the typical that they show on TV, like, well, how does that make you feel? Well, how does right. that make you feel? Well, how does it? And that, like, if I'm sitting there just at a certain point, just being like, are, what are you even talking about? What do you mean? How does that make me feel? Like, I just asked you a question. Why are you asking how it makes me feel? I want to know how you feel right now or whatever. Does do have you ever had an experience like that where um, or are you worried about that? Like, I guess, breaking the vibe by asking too many questions or something. Is there this delicate balance of the, this give and take that you're having to keep in mind the whole time? Well, yeah, again, I think that is why I would say that psychodynamic psychoanalytic therapy is more of an art than a science because there is a delicate balance. You are ultimately two human beings in a room and you know, you can't pretend that, that you, you don't have your own experiences. And yet I think that it's more helpful to a patient to allow them to be the one who is, you know, being taken up rather than, you know, I think part of why we shift stuff onto the therapist is because it's uncomfortable to stick with their own feelings. That's such a good point. So basically you need to get them comfortable with a different type of relationship mm. than what they're used to. Like you said earlier very well said. about the, uh, um, the interactions that we're having day to day versus the interaction that you should or would be having with a therapist that, yeah, I mean, once they get comfortable with that, I guess that that no longer becomes an issue. Like I've never seen a therapist. So all these ideas pop up in my head, mm. but I guess if you, if you've been seeing a therapist for a while and they continue to like, I I think also part of, of the whole entire, like, why are you still asking me questions? Is just the natural human, human thing of like, man, I've been talking about myself for too long. Like I kind of like, am I being narcissistic? Like, I think this other person needs to talk for a while or whatever. But um, I guess as you kind of relax and settle into this vibe of being with a therapist that maybe you're, it allows you to just continue to answer questions and deepen yourself. Yeah, I think one of the things that I like to think about psychoanalytic psychotherapy is that a huge purpose of it is to become a little more comfortable being uncomfortable. We're so bad at being uncomfortable. Totally. And the amount of pain that people are willing to endure to avoid feeling some original source of pain is really astounding. Yeah. So sometimes just helping people see that they can handle it. They can withstand the discomfort. It's not that bad, Totally. you know, and sometimes it is that bad, but sometimes what we find is the things we've been using to cope from feeling bad are worse than the original badness we were trying not to feel. Yeah, definitely. I think about that so often, like, how much of the time I'll break eye contact with somebody when I didn't need to, or you laugh or tell a joke or something when you didn't need to, 
or you know whatever it is and now i'm just going to keep having this staring contest with you right now since i just said that but uh yeah it's um it's really crazy that just the little like to your point of the the extent to which we're not okay with uncomfort it's like it it, that permeates almost every moment of every day you know the amount of times that you're trying to weave in and out of these uncomfortable quote-unquote uncomfortable situations which really no big deal at all like just make eye contact with the person who who cares mm-hmm. like no big deal you know yeah but it feels like a big deal and you know that's part of it is respecting that it is hard to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. if it was so easy not to be we just would do it yeah and you know it takes time and practice and you know dedication yeah hard work sure. what made you say as a young person i think i want to become a psychologist you know i would guess that Many more people than not in this field do so because at some point in their life, they realized they had a lot to learn about themselves and their family and the way that people attach and interact to each other. Um, I think for me, I've always known that whatever I would end up doing would have to do with understanding and examining my relationship to myself, to others and to the world. And to me, psychology is a lot like a puzzle. You know, we have bits of information about the way that we operate. And then there's a lot about ourselves that we don't know that we've worked really hard not to know. And slowly with time in therapy, you start to put those pieces of the puzzle together. So it just combined a lot of the things that I found interesting. I also had a psychology professor who was really inspiring and helped me see that, in fact, psychology is in everything. And if you know a lot about Absolutely. psychology, you can know a lot about the world. Yeah, no doubt. You can take over the world if you know uh, what <laughs> people are thinking. Um, so has that, has that kind of all panned out for you for the good? Or do you see any, any detriment to that? I recently had a stand-up comedian on the show. And he was talking about how when he started doing stand-up, he, he now has to look at everything all the time with such kind of a analytical and mocking lens, if you want to call it that, because that's the type of standup that he does, that it's almost just like a bad attitude to be walking around the world with, you know? Um, And that's, he's kind of opened this Pandora's box that he cannot shut now. Do you now find that because you know all these things, like, are you completely analyzing everything that I'm saying right now? And like, I wonder what this guy's childhood was like because he's saying these things and he's asking this question. Do you find that you're you're analyzing the crap out of people all the time when maybe you shouldn't be? I think you're expressing a fear that a lot of people have when they find out about this type of work, which is that somehow there's the superpower of being able to look into minds or know (laughs) things before other people know them. And no, it's not the case. I can't know more about someone than they choose to show to me. And um, I do think I look at things differently now, and I do think I, quote unquote, analyze things differently. But it's also my work. You know, I think that no matter what you do for a living, you come home and you don't want to do it for a little while. So when I'm with my friends, I'm not trying to be their therapist. (laughs) Although sometimes I might feel enlisted to do that because I'm able to think about things differently. Ultimately, I think that you start to learn how to balance just being a human being (laughs) with what you're doing for a living. How do you find that it's helped you out in your own personal ability to deal with... um, you know, sadness, anger, whatever it is that you're going through in your life? Well, I feel like this is a good place to put out there what I feel is perhaps my most important message, which is that when I'm talking about what I do, the best way I can do that is by talking about myself as a patient. 
and not as a therapist. Because I think having seen things from both sides of the couch, if you will, I've really come to understand what it is that psychotherapy is. And it's my experience as a patient that's really helped me um, wrap my mind around this field and its purpose and how beneficial it can be. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a little bit. What types of people do you think should be seeing a therapist? Um, if if that's a low threshold and a lot of people should be seeing therapists, uh, another question is when you become a full-blown psychologist, you no longer get to see those people with just kind of everyday mundane problems. Are you now like leveled up so you only get to see more more serious, real problems? I'll definitely answer both those questions. To answer the latter one first, it's actually the opposite. My first year, uh, I was seeing the most intense, most serious problems of my career thus far. And that's because the people who perhaps need the support the most are the ones who can't afford someone who is a licensed, experienced psychologist. And therefore, it's like being at a teaching hospital. We learn as we go. And, you know, it's a problem in the field that the people who need the most extensive support aren't getting it. But it's, you know for the most part, better than not getting help. So when I graduate, I'll have more choice, perhaps, in the types of specialties that I pursue. But ultimately, I hope to balance seeing people who are there because they want to understand their own mind better, as well as people who are there because getting through the world is such a struggle that they're just barely able to do it. Everything in between. To answer the question about who could benefit from seeing psychotherapists, I would certainly say everyone. But the truth is, it's kind of a personal crusade of mine to get out there and spread the word about why psychoanalytic psychotherapy can be so beneficial. I think people often want whatever is going to help them the most quickly. And uh, analytically oriented therapy is more of a long-term solution, but it is that way on purpose. You know, it sort of takes the stance that if things were so easy to change, people would have changed them already. And we respect how complicated our relationships to our more difficult aspects of ourselves are. And you pay tribute to that by taking the time to slowly understand them, take them up one by one, and decide whether it might be beneficial and possible to change your relationship to them. So anybody who wants to understand their internal world better and who wants to examine the ways in which they relate to the people in their life and to themselves can benefit from psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy. So what would be the difference between psychoanalytic therapy versus just regular therapy? What's the analytic piece and what what's the long-term view on that? So therapy pretty much is a word that, I don't know, it's kind of a pop culture word. It can mean anything now. Psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy fits into the category I was talking about before with psychodynamic therapy, which is the belief in the unconscious, the belief that there is this sort of dark pool that rests under our conscious self that's filled with all of the things of our past that, you know, kind of mitigates and decides and pushes for the way that we relate to the world. And that therapy allows you to start to perhaps not take these things up so much as change your relationship to your relationship to them a bit and um, decide what's still serving you and what not so much. That's so interesting. As something like meditation becomes more fashionable and people like me want to do it and stuff, what are your thoughts on someone just trying to go within to, and, and go quiet to to try to um, sort out some of these things and like see past their own ego for a little bit versus trying to talk that out 
And I guess what type of person in your experience do you think might benefit from one over the other? Mm. You know, I think that different things work for different people. And there, I know people who have felt profound change from things like meditation and yoga. And I truly believe in these things. And I think that it's kind of a misconception to think that what therapy is, is just talking because I think the therapist is trained to listen not only to the words, but beyond the words to the music of what a person is trying to communicate non-verbally in various ways. And that what's really characterizes a psychoanalytic psychotherapy is the relationship between the therapist and the patient, that the two actually form a relationship that over time comes to be almost a microcosm of all of the relationships in the patient's life. And you examine it as a way to understand what is happening out in the world. And not only does that give the patient a chance to see it being reflected back to them in a way that they can take and do something with, but it also allows the therapist to respond to the patient in a different way than the patient is used to being responded to out in the world. So let's say a patient is, you know, in a lot of relationships where they are, being, you know, told that they need to, you know, don't cry or don't get so mad or whatever it might be. And so they're used to having to kind of tamp down their feelings all the time. The therapist can see that that is the way the patient is and over time can act differently, can say, no, let me see those things. Let's see what they look like. I can handle it and we will figure it out together. Wow. That's beautiful. And that's crazy. Just hearing (laughs) That the talking about your relationship with the patient being kind of a microcosm of like a sign of greater things and their relationship with everyone in their lives and everything. Uh, man, that just makes me think about the earlier question of, of how, how much must be going on in your head at any given time when you're just talking to anyone. Like, I imagine that that's a very difficult thing to turn off. Like, I mean, you, you know, you were saying that you turn that off, like when you're with your friends, but there is, there are certain parts of us that. It's like, you know, as much as you try to turn that off, it's always there. It's always running, you know? Yeah, I would say that a lot of psychotherapists would probably call it a slightly masochistic <laughs> occupational choice. Yeah. Um, I love it. So let's say a therapist is sitting across from a patient and they realize that they're feeling really angry. In that moment, they're going to think, okay, am I angry for something that has nothing to do with this patient and it's something I'm bringing in and I need to work through? Is the patient angry at me and they're trying to communicate that? They're angry at someone else in their life. Am I angry at the patient for something that happened that I need to work through? Could be any of these things. And the idea is just that every feeling gives some information to what's happening inside the room and you just hold that information until the answer becomes a little more clear. That's interesting. And so... You don't you don't feel that that makes your day to day life more difficult having all those thoughts, all those thoughts running around your head. Like, do you feel that the, the, those thoughts running around your head is uh, is influenced by this path that you've taken or that either way you'd be having those thoughts anyways? No, I definitely think I mean, it's influenced it in that I've learned that every feeling we have is a lot more complicated than it seems. <laughs> right, definitely. Everything we think has to do with someone else has a lot more to do with ourself. Yeah. You know, everything that comes up is multifaceted. That, that's what it's taught me is not to take things at face value, yeah. that there's something underneath everything. And if we can be open to it and, uh, you know, be willing to 
sit in the discomfort of not knowing for a little while, then a more true version of what's going on will come up. Uh, Someone recently said, when you start talking without conviction, you get closer to the truth. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, So you just said uh, that there's kind of always something behind what a person is saying. And that makes sense that someone with, you know, going through all these years of schooling would say something like that. But as like a layman, I would say that that's not ne- that that's not necessarily true. Like sometimes, if I sit like if um like a cliche comedian thing of a a husband like not commenting on a wife's dress or just saying something about a wife's dress and then it being taken the wrong way because it's like, well, what is behind those words about the dress? Does it mean this other thing? And the guy just being like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like I just happened to not notice that dress or I didn't or whatever it is. You know, like there was nothing behind the words or there was nothing behind the lack of words. But do you, so do you truly believe that no matter what the person thinks or admits to themselves that there kind of always is something behind the words or the, the lack of what they're saying? Well, I tweak the language a little and I wouldn't say there's always something behind things. I'd say there are things underneath things. So, you know, we're a product of all of our experiences up till now and we're not aware of all of the ways that our experiences have influenced us. You know, Freud did say sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, meaning, you know, reality (laughs) is there and sometimes things are just what they are. Sure. But I would say that there's so much that we're unaware of and all kinds of ways that in just little micro tiny ways we are causing things to happen around us. One of my favorite quotes by Carl Jung is until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. So there's this idea that things happen to us. When really, you know, we're pulling for things all the time, totally. putting stuff out there, you know, some might say into the universe, and I just kind of say out into the world, Yeah, that um, causes a lot more to happen than we realize. Yeah. So you have this subconscious energy, subconscious vibe, subconscious thoughts, whatever it is, and that that's slowly creating your reality is what you're saying. Mm-hmm, that, you know, our reality is created by everything that came before it. And so much of that is n- things that we're not acutely aware of. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. What is it like to have to kind of take home people's burden? I imagine that you can't just leave that at the office. And and what is that like as a calling in life to have people just unload emotionally on you throughout the course of a week? And now it's like Friday night and your friends want to go out and grab a drink and you've just heard the most like terrible stories all week. Yeah, well, that's why I think anyone in this field should be in their own therapy or analysis, uh, because to take on other people's pain and not have anywhere to process through your own, I think is not helpful. Um, that being said, I think it's a particular type of person who chooses to do this job. There is some compartmentalization that's required to be able to keep living your life. And then there's also ways that you cope. So for example, I don't watch a lot of the news because I feel like there's a lot of pain in the world and I'm exposed to it in one particular way so i don't expose myself to it in another particular way yeah same agreed uh not 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 that i'm exposed to pain but i just don't i don't want to invite in any sort of pain so i totally understand how do you feel that uh since you started down this path to therapy your relationship with those around you has changed do you feel like your relationship with your family is any different your relationship with your friends i think that when i speak to that I would want to speak to it more as someone who's been through my own therapy for six and a half years now, Yeah, because 
it's easy for me as someone who does a job to talk about how efficient and effective it is. But I think maybe it's more compelling to say that as someone who's done therapy as the patient, it is extremely profound. It has changed all of my relationships. It has changed the way that I relate to people I don't know. It's changed the way I relate to my family, to my friends, to my partner, to myself. And it's not the kind of change that happens instantly. It's that slow cooker change that happens almost without you realizing it a lot of the time. You know, sometimes it bubbles up at once. Sometimes you just realize how far you've come and you don't know how you got there. Like when you drive yourself home and you don't actually remember doing it. <laughs> yeah. It takes a lot of different forms. But I'd say having having done it myself, I believe in it as much as any other mental health or or really wellness modality that I've come across. That's so great. Why, why would you say that going through the therapy, you feel, you feel more of a change than, than learning about learning about what's going on the other side? Well, I don't know if I can necessarily distinguish that the change that I'm speaking of has only come from me being a patient. But I can say that when I try to tell people about why therapy would be good for them, I do it from the perspective of me being a patient because that I think means more, you know, it's, it's like, I'd rather go to a travel agent who's been around the world than one (laughs) who's studied extensively about other countries. Yeah, for sure. So, so why then, then tell us that for you, just for you personally, like what are the ways that it's changed the way that you can look at things and what are the ways that it has changed your, your relationship with your family and stuff like that? I mean, the, There's so many answers to that. I would compare it to, you know, if life is like a piece of fabric that you weave over time, then to me, my therapy has felt like the opportunity to take up each thread one piece at a time and decide what's still working and what's not and to reweave the threads that aren't working into something better. Rather than, than feeling stuck with the person that you are, with the life that you have, you, you feel that this is now more this malleable thing where you can, you can change these different parts about yourself or help, help yourself out more. Yeah. I feel more aware. I feel more um, like a truer version of myself. People have asked me, are you a lot happier now? Is that why it's worth it? And I've thought, you know, it's not that I'm a lot happier now. It's that when I'm happy, it feels like real, true, genuine happiness and when i'm sad it feels like real true pure sadness and my relationship to those feelings has changed and it feels really profound that's so interesting could you for those of us that maybe don't even know what this feeling is like could you explain that real pure true happiness that you feel now versus what you would have called happiness before well i could try to give an example like um Let's say someone has gone through their life with a lot of struggles, but at least they've always known that they were smart, let's say. And every time they succeeded at something, they felt a certain type of good because they've proven to themselves, see, I'm smart, see, I'm smart. But then let's say they realize that the reason it's so important for them to be smart is so that they don't have to feel all the other really difficult things that they're not or all the things that they felt like they should have been. 
And as they realize that, then their relationship to what it means to be smart changes. doesn't mean they're not anymore. It doesn't mean it's not important or that it's not helpful in their life, but it's a different feeling. And so then maybe the next time they do something that's, you know, they're not the best at, but it's different than the thing they've always clung to. You know, let's say the next time they're um, funny, um, they might think, okay, so maybe I'm not the funniest, like I am the smartest, but at least this is something that I am. And it can just be that. And I can feel just good about that fact. Yeah. Is it, is it even really possible for someone to, um, to go into a psychologist or a therapist without a really direct goal? Because uh, hearing you talk about that sounds very um, appealing to have this. And that, that is the reason that most people, let's say, are trying to meditate. So let's say that you are meditating and you would also like to work in um, a, a therapy component or something like that. Is that too vague of a goal to have in therapy? It, can I just come in and say, hey, I think I want to be happier? Um, is that is that kind of a rough jumping off place? No, I mean, I think, you know, inevitably in life, difficult things happen or, you know, issues come up that are really detrimental to a person's life. And that is often the time that people seek therapy to deal with a really tough event or when something about them is really getting in the way of their life. And that's a great time to reach out for extra support. But the truth is starting therapy when you're not in crisis or when things aren't all bad actually allows you to work with resources that are currently available to you to delve deeper into yourself. And it also allows you time to form a relationship with someone so that when things do get tough in your life, you already have that formed. They already know a little bit about the way you respond and they are going to be able to sort of pick you up right there where you are instead of trying to get to know someone and deal with something really tough at the same time. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Have you ever seen anyone like that in like preventative mode or is it all been crisis mode? Definitely. And I wouldn't even call it, I mean, I wouldn't even call it preventative. It's almost like weekly therapy is really beneficial to functioning stable people. You know, just like students in a classroom learn best when they're relaxed. I think people can often progress more when their psyche is calm Mm -hmm. and when they're in a position to examine things with less on the line in a way. So The reason I say it's not preventative is that, you know, therapy doesn't stop difficult things from happening in your life, but it does allow you to shore up your resources a little and understand yourself better so that when tough things come up, you have a better relationship to your own way of handling life. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we kind of finish this thing off with a couple different kinds of advice that we can give people? So for one, if, if someone is sitting at home trying to decide whether or not um, they would want to see a therapist. Is there any sort of like internal checklist or advice that you would like to give people thinking about maybe seeing a therapist? You know, I think that therapy is one of those things that's easier experienced than explained. I think that sitting for a session with a therapist is going to tell a person a lot more about what therapy is like than anyone explaining it to them. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling, you know, it's, it's that feeling you get when someone's really listening to you and present and, um, you know, it's, it's hard to explain what the benefit is because it's more of a a felt experience. Um, so I would say, give it a try. Then, then what is the cost? Just so listeners know that, like depending on where they're at financially, there's a huge range of cost. 
There are sliding scale clinics all over the place that can go as low as $25, $30 a session, all the way up to a really experienced licensed psychologist who's been practicing for 20 years, who's going to charge, you know, $190, $200 a session. So depending on your insurance plan, is that something that insurance would sometimes help out with? Some insurances cover, some don't, some therapists take insurance, some don't. Okay. It's, you know. So the cost has got to just, yeah, completely vary. It does. And unfortunately, mental health just is not totally supported or validated in our society much. I mean, people, you know, insurance companies don't want to pay for two years of slow, effective change. They want to pay someone to, you know, quote unquote, fix it immediately. Yeah. Only to fall apart again. It's so crazy. Yeah. You know, I feel like part of why I'm sort of on this crusade of spending, (laughs) spreading the word of psychoanalytic psychotherapy is that it feels like the next generation is a little more open to the idea that things take a while, you know, and uh, they're a little more willing to invest time and resources to something that's going to make more of a change in the long run. Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly what's been going on in the medical industry for the past 20, 30 years hasn't been working very well. So yeah, I think people of our age are, can witness that and just know that that's not really what they want, you know? Yeah. You know, one of my very favorite sayings that I've ever heard is, you know, in, in any given relationship, I think, you know, whether it's business, romantic, friendship, whatever it might be, I think that the common attitude is, I'll take care of you if you'll take care of me. And I think it would be pretty amazing if people started thinking instead, I'll take care of me for you if you'll take care of you for me. The thing about therapy is it's a ripple effect. The healthier you are and the more you're in touch with what's going on, the less you put it out there and throw it all over people around you so that you can try to figure out and so that you don't have to feel it. The more in touch you are with yourself, the more everyone around you is going to benefit from that. And uh, I think that, you know, the best way I've been able to spread the word of therapy is, like I said, talking about my own. And as people have seen changes happening in my life, they've started to open their mind to what it might do for them. Absolutely. Man, that's awesome. Um, So... Let's go for the therapist side. So if you were going to give any advice to somebody thinking about possibly becoming a therapist, um, what would that advice be? What type of person, as opposed to what type of person would you recommend? Let's say what type of person would you say should maybe steer clear of becoming a therapist? There are just so many types of therapy. Um, You know, not to be a broken record, but I'd say if you're interested in becoming a therapist, I still think the first thing you should do is get yourself into therapy and yeah. see what it feels like. I mean, see what it's like to be in that kind of situation in that room. Um, I would never say that anyone shouldn't be a therapist. I, I think it's completely subjective what kind of person wants to put themselves in that situation. It is tough. It's a lot of school. It's a lot of money. And it can be really heavy sometimes, but it's pretty amazing what can come of it if it's the right fit for you yeah so you're at what 10 years of school at this point let's see four years of college and six and a half years of graduate school so that's crazy and what if you could take a stab at the financial estimate like what are we talking about there oh it's different i mean phds will you know quote unquote pay their Oh, doctoral right. students, working as, yeah. right, because they're working as TAs. PsyDs, you pay for the programming, and then you have to get your hours. So, I mean, you know, student loans aren't the best situation in this country, but they do make it possible. Yeah, that's crazy. Is it, uh, 
Sorry, I'm just trying to get get a, a somewhat hard and fast answer for the people listening. If it's something that they really wanted to try, are we looking at more than a hundred thousand dollars or less than a hundred thousand dollars? I'd say if you wanted to take the PsyD route, you should have about thirty k a year for school plus living expenses wow. for at least five years, maybe more. Okay, cool, crazy. Um, all right, well, that's all I got for you, Emily. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Just wanted to give you all a quick reminder that if you have any ideas for the show, be that a person that you would like me to interview or just a topic that you would like me to cover on the show and you want me to track someone down, or if you have a question for an episode like today's or any other episode that you were kind of biting your tongue and wishing that I had asked, you can submit all that through my website on the Submit Your Ideas link and I will either track down an old guest to ask those questions for you or find that new guest that you want to hear from. Thanks so much.